Thank you so much, Pastor Adrian, for leading us in our service. Good morning, everyone. How are you feeling? Okay, we can turn to each other and say, good morning, everybody. <laughs> As we greet each other, of course, there's no time to explore the conversation a little bit more, but it's very important. All that was read, all that was sung for us. I was watching a father and his two young children at an outdoor playground at uh, Marina Bay Sands. And it's one of those outdoor playgrounds which is quite uh, fairly new and fairly good. And it was on a cycle, right? A stationary uh, cycle there. And um, he was paddling as fast as he could. Actually, they were taking turns. It was the children who were paddling first. And then the father got on and he was paddling as fast as he could. And it, I discovered later after they left, I think it was to paddle. If you pedal fast enough, you light up enough energy to light up a light bulb. <laughs> right? That you could light up a light bulb. And so by the time the father finished, he was breathless, he was panting, but he had made enough energy to light up a bulb. And so he took a test, he passed the test, and his young children, he was the kid's hero for that moment. That dad could be so good and so fit that if we ever black out, he can light up the, the house. So it was so fun, so joy, uh, so joyful, and so good to witness. So I got it on it later. <laughs> but I won't tell you the result. <laughs> stories, true stories told of a friend taking a um, treadmill stress test in Bangkok in Thailand. And as he took the test, started, started it, the nurse walked out for a while to get something and pop in. As she walked out, he suffered a heart attack and he never recovered. When you do a stress test or a treadmill test, you're supposed to be watched every second. He took a test and he died. First John revolves around three tests. The first test is what I call the Christ test, the Jesus test, the technical word, the Christological test, as to what do you believe on, of Jesus? Do you truly believe He is fully divine and fully human and not this Christ of speculation that these teachers were teaching? And then the second test is, as a result of believing in Him, is the, the obedience test, the morality test, how does belief in Jesus show up in your life from moment to moment, from day to day? And it must show up in this passage in Acts of Righteousness. He's going to introduce this in a huge way. And the third test that flows from the Jesus test and the obedience test and the morality test is the love test. That ultimately, if you believe in Jesus, you must practice who Jesus is. The perfection of humility, the perfection of love that has come to cancel us, the perfection of pride and the perfection of unlove. And so I ask of you, if God put you on a treadmill test for those three things, they're not three tests. They are three sides of the same test. And the three sides of the same test is, do you know the true, the living and the loving God? If God put you on a test, would you pass or would you fail? Not simply with earthly consequences, but fail with eternal consequences. And so it's very important right, that we understand this. How do we know, 
So John is warning them about two fatal dangers, the supremacy of the false teachers and this knowledge that they claim they had. And then because of the supremacy of their knowledge, the separatism, that it was no problem for them to leave John's church, which didn't have the full gospel and didn't know the true God. And so he gave them these three tests. And the three tests now revolve around a very important phrase. Come with me to verse chapter 2, verse 29. And verse 29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been, if you're reading your Bibles, you keep your Bibles open in front of you, right? And as you keep your Bibles open on your phones, make sure you're looking at the Bible and not reading the news. And the test is, you have been born of him. And this is the first time he introduces this idea, born of God. So how do you know you belong to a family? Is it proven because you carry the same surname? Is it proven that you belong to the same family because you have the same common activities? You grew up as the Shah family, as the Munoz family, as the Lee family, the Tan family, the Smith family. You did common things together. Or do you all have the same looks? And then you can claim we belong to the same family. Do any or some of those things show or prove convincingly that we belong to our earthly families? The church is... Can you fill that in for me? The church is... Dot, 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 dot. The church is in Bishan. The church is... Was, is in Adam. The church will be in Tengah. That's the locality, the geography of the church. But what's the substance and the spirit of the church? The church is God's family. That's one definition you must never forget. And that's what he means by born of him. And so, the issue is how we really know we belong to God. John's church was facing a separatist group, a defection group, a breakaway group. So we need to ask, why did this group leave? And in a nutshell, they claim to have this special gnosis or knowledge. They become cleverer, and becoming cleverer, you think you're better and truer than the apostles John's disciples. The issue was knowledge. And we said last week, the word to perceive, ginoskian, appears 25 times from the root word knowledge. The related word to know, edamai, appears another 25 times the separatists had turned their supreme knowledge, elitist knowledge, into a spiritual highway. That they had a short highway to heaven. You follow them, you will know the true and the living God. And as I say that, the Church of Jesus Christ over 2,000 years, indeed if you include the Old Testament, suffers two extreme dangers. And the two extreme dangers is ignorance. I don't need to know so much. Me, simple believer lah. I don't need to know so much. The other is we swing to the extreme arrogance. Knowledge is all we need. Listen to that one. If knowledge is all you need for life, then who is it you don't need? If knowledge is all you need for life and eternal life, you surely don't need Jesus. You don't need Jesus and the cross. You don't need a man suffering on the cross for you. You don't need a man dying, bleeding for your sins to satisfy God's wrath 
upon every thought, every word, every deed that you have done in rebellion against God, in unlove towards your neighbour. If all you need is knowledge, you will bypass Jesus. If you bypass Jesus, that's the end of you and me. So the church is God's family. How? We are going to address that very soon. So John is not writing to the separatists. He's not writing to the breakaways. He's not writing to the defectors. You know why? They are gone. Who is John writing to? John is writing as a pastor to his own sheep. Why? To protect his beloved children, a term that he uses from what? From mistaken beliefs that sound so true, from mistaken behaviour that looks so right, simply because they have an extra dose of knowledge by exposing how attractive, and how is John doing this? He's going to expose how attractive this teaching is, how seductive this teaching is, and finally, how destructive this teaching is, this half-truths. And now, and as he does that, he's going to stop the divisiveness of his once loving united church because love is expressed in unity and so there are four things here that we need to look at as he explains what being born of god means being children of god means the first in the last verse, verses of chapter 2 verse 28 to 29 is this he gives us what we call the god or return test and when he gives you the god or return test he's basically saying be confident and so what does he say here? Verse 28, And now, dear children, continue in him. That's a big word. Continue in him, remain in him, abide in him. Start with him, continue with him, finish with him. So that when he, when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So, three groups of people here. There is John, the pastor, the author. There is the church, the receiver. And they are the separatists, the troublemakers who have left. All these quarrels, <clears throat> all these differences, all these divisions, who is right, who is wrong, why such quarrels, they come from what? They fail to factor in the fourth person in their lives. And so there are three parties here. There's John, there's his church, there are separatists. There's so much confusion and so much division because they fail to factor in the most important person, God. Specifically, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, I just want to ask you, right? When are you fearless to do wrong? You are fearless to do wrong when you fail to fear God. The two things are very tight. When you fail to fear God here, you'll be fearless to do wrong in thought, and word and deed. But if you factor God in and the faith in God and the fear in God, it will change the way you think. It will change your decisions and your actions. It will change your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. So you factor God in, it will change all things. And John's focus here is specifically on Christ's return. It's translated manifestation or appearing. It appears six times in this portion. And four times it refers to Jesus. And twice this appearing word appears, it, it refers firstly to his first coming, 2,000 years ago. The, second two, the next two times it appears, it refers to his second coming, 
whenever that is, like a thief in the night. When you and I are unprepared, that there is a risen Saviour seated at God's right hand and He's going to come and save His children, save God's children, and He's going to judge the world that has rejected Him. So this word is very important. What? When Christ returns, when Christ returns six times is referred to. It's a little bit like, right, I've given this parents, okay? Sometimes you divide between the father and the mother in raising young children. <clears throat> and let's say it's the mother who is the main caregiver at home, you're the main teacher, <clears throat> but you have decided between yourselves. <clears throat> I probably need a drink somewhere. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. <clears throat> You've decided between yourselves that the father will do the disciplining. And sometimes when your children misbehave, you will say to the children, wait till your father comes home. <laughs> because he's the disciplinarian. And so when he comes home, you clean up. Behaviour changes. They used to say that, for those of you who are newer, our oldest pastor served here uh, was Reverend John Ting. He's now retired and gone back to Sydney, Australia because of old age and sicknesses to be with his family. And Reverend John Ting walks around with a face like this. I walk around with a face like this. I was born with a smile, quite different, and Adrian is in between. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, they used to say to the children's church at Adam Road, you don't behave you wait till Reverend John Ting comes. <laughs> then Reverend John Ting left. Then they turn it. You don't behave. Thanks, Andrew, so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. You don't behave. And Auntie Karen is going to come. <laughs> For the life of me. <laughs> when Karen heard that in the star meeting, please, ah, don't associate with me. Then now they use a new one. You don't behave, Pastor Chris will turn up. The thing is, the young kids don't know us. So many of us who don't turn up at children's church unless we turn up to teach there. When Jesus turns up, and He will turn up in all His glory to save His glorious church for eternal glory, you better clean up. And you clean up not by works, you clean up because your life has been graced by Him. That's the big thing. I've told this story many times. Han Mi, when she was young in primary school in Peiwa, right? She came back one day and said, Hey, Dad, Mom, the school's so clean. I said, why? Everywhere clean. The, the field is clean. The, the, all the classrooms are clean. Everywhere is clean. I said, don't know why. La, the, the principal said something, assembly, that the minister coming. Uh. <laughs> a young innocent child at two, three, uh, sec, uh, primary two or three. When the minister comes to schools, schools clean up. Minister of Health comes, hospitals clean up. When Jesus comes, who do you think need to clean up? All of us. In the light of His appearing, you better pass the Christological test, the obedience test, and the love test. You can't afford to fail any of them. And that's important. And He says, if you are doing this right, if you are doing this right, if you continue in Christ, you will be confident. And here is where a little bit of the Greek is helpful. When He comes again, the word used is parousia. So try that, everybody. Parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-E, parousia. So we learn a new word today. When Jesus returns, a great word for His coming, His appearing is a parousia. And John uses a word, if you are abiding in Him, you will have parousia, confidence. It's a play of words. When the parousia comes, you will have parousia. If you don't abide in Him, 
you don't remain in Jesus, you give up on Jesus and you take on knowledge, you will be ashamed. You will have no confidence, my friends. Very important that we get this right. And so, I just did two weddings over the weekend, right, Friday and, and one on Saturday. I bumped into a sister in Christ I've not met for years, and I just asked her, are you still going to this church that I know she went to? She said, I still come by, I'll go to another one. Say, why do you go to the other one? I'm not too timing, but I'm getting double dose. Because this old one that I go to, right, um, they don't preach the second coming at all. No? I've not heard it in the last five years or ten years. But this other church she goes to, preach the second coming almost every week. Then after they preach the second coming every week, they send us out to evangelize the neighborhood. Now I want to ask you, which church is right? And then we'll decide what we'll do from week to week. You tell us what you want to do. So we will preach whatever your itching ears want to hear. You want to hear no, no return of Jesus? Or you want to hear the return of Jesus? If you preach the gospel, it must have the return of Jesus. Amen? What you do with that, you now have to listen very carefully. Because of the parousia, you either have parousia or you will be ashamed. If you left Jesus behind somewhere along the way, because someone preached to you a more attractive, seductive gospel, and you fell for it because of your needs, you fell for it because they, were, they sounded more eloquent, you never leave Jesus behind. Never leave Him behind. And that's very important. And so, with the God test, the return test, is be confident or be ashamed. Which one are you? Will you be confident or you be afraid that you left Him behind and you have no one to shelter you from the wrath of God because you didn't find shelter in the only person who could propitiate for your sins. You know what propitiate means? It's not mere forgiveness downwards, forgive you of sins. He firstly satisfies God's wrath. He absorbs that. Only then can you be forgiven. There's an upward movement of Jesus' work. Obey the Father, satisfy the Father on your behalf. You leave Jesus behind. No one is going to do that upward function and no one's going to accomplish the downward thing for you. He is the only way. And then he comes to the family test. And the family test, the simple message is, be like him. It's all be so if you know Jesus, the main message here, if you know Jesus is righteous, that he always acted righteously before his father, then you as those who believe in him, claim to believe in him, if you believe that Jesus is righteous, then what must you do? You must live righteously. Right? It's all about behaving as God's children, His family, the, the people of God. And so we read here in chapter 3, verse 1, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that should be called children of God. See how he goes on now? And now he focuses on how lavish. Basically, the, the language there, Behold, look here, see what manner of love God has given unto us to be so loved by God, right? And John wants us to stare at that word and be so amazed that God's love in Christ is so amazing. He wants us to contemplate and consider deeply what? The newness of this, the greatness of this. You know, he wrote John 3.16 that man, many of us as Christians memorize. And why is John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, 
but have eternal life. We need to find out what John 16 does not mean. So we eradicate all the mistaken meanings and go for the truer meaning. John 3.16 does not mean that the world is so big that God cannot love everyone in it. It does not mean that the world is so good, the created world is so good that God was compelled to love it, He couldn't leave it behind because He created it in the first place. It's more so that the world is so bad that God should love anyone in it. It's the worldliness of this world, not the createdness of this world. The world is so evil that God, is, that God shouldn't love it. But He loves this world and He loves you and me even though we are rebels against Him. Here is the only reason we are called children of God. Why? The only reason we are called children of God is because of God's love in Christ. Here is the only way we become children of God. Very important. So, I mean, my daughter came back last time from a basic outing, our youth group, and then she walked past Trinity Church, this brand new building about to start services. As you come to Adam, you'll notice that she heard kittens. And she inched closer and she said, she came back and told us, Dad, I saw five kittens. She's fallen in love with cats. And we keep one now that's half paralyzed because of a disease. And so I said, you want Samoa? We can barely cope with this. And no, 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 I just want to show the video, etc. Right? Then my mind raised back. Though I'm a dog lover, right? Because of my love for my children, I will do anything. Years and years ago, I was running a membership class with Mona, and we heard a sound, so I con continued to conduct the class, and I sent my helper out to check out the sound. My helper is Mona, <laughs> just in case, la, so go check out the sound, right? And it turned out to be a kitten. I came back from a membership class, and there was my wife with my two young kids at that time, holding that kitten. So they said, can we keep it? Everything within me said no. But just looking at their cute faces, okay. But you look after her, huh? not me, because I'm a dog lover. And then the cat grew up. And very distinctive thing about this cat, if you remember, every morning as I sat in my patio to have my quiet time and read my Bible, it would come and sit and stretch before me and sit beside me. And I thought all the time it was there to irritate me and frustrate me. <laughs> then one day it dawned on me, this is a Christian cat. <laughs> it's sharing quiet time with me, leading into de deep devotion. Just because this kitten grew up to be a cat in a pastor's home and a church building doesn't make it a Christian. You do not become a Christian by osmosis. You do not become a Christian by activity. Because you played in the bank, you sang in the team, you gave money and you gave lots of money to turn out. We are thankful for that. But you don't become a children, a child of God simply by giving money. Right? You, become, you don't become a child of God because you led Bible study, because I preach a thousand sermons. You become a child of God because of God's love for you. His mega huge love for you. That's the thing. How lavish is this love? that He has given to us. This is not by any human decision or action. It's God's, by God's decision and action to us. This is who we are now. You want to think of yourself? This is who I am now, singularly. Child of God. Child of God. Child of God. Because of what has, God has done for us in Jesus, in Jesus, in Christ. 
and so this is vitally important, the family test. If you say we are children of God, and we look at how He made us children of God, through Jesus who acted righteously, then if we bear some family likeness, we will keep living righteously. It's very important that we get this right. And John goes on to say, right, the world did not recognize you, right? Dear friends, now we are children of God, verse 2, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, see the word appears, we shall be like Him and we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Right now, we are very unrecognized and unknown by the world. Is that true? Do you ever catch an MRT or stand at a bus station and people say to you, there's something about you, like a halo. Can you tell me, are you a child of God? Has anyone come up to you like that? We were doing a Bible, leader's Bible study by uh, on site and then Pastor Kenneth was zooming in. Then halfway through in his cheekiness, he put a halo over his head. You know, I kept getting distracted. What's that? What's that? Then finally realized it's halo. He needed that. I, right? Because no aura of holiness. I went to a community dinner, right? It was IRCC and religious leaders from all things so arrived and there was a man already sitting at dinner of a table of 10. I greeted him. I said, what do you, uh, he, Asked, what do I do? I said, I'm pastor. And he said immediately, even if you didn't tell me, I could tell. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, really? My wife doesn't say that. My children don't say that. Nobody has ever said that. I have an aura. He was, I mean, it was an icebreaker. Lah, right? It's just something social that you say. In this world that we live in, the world will not recognize us because it did not recognize Christ. The world not, will not recognize that we are the church of God, we are the children of God. So what does that mean? I wrote it down here, right? You mustn't allow the rejection of this world. You mustn't allow the opposition of this world to shake your confidence that you are a child of God and the children of God. Just because you are rejected doesn't change your status with God. Just because you're rejected here, humanly on earth, in every season and station of life, doesn't mean you're not a child or children of God. And so, I was listening to the BBC just yesterday while driving to the wedding. And this record, right, this record, that was just broken, 400 metres hurdle, women's, and the World Athletics Championship, right? And her name is Sydney McLaughlin. Those who love athletics, ever so often I tune in to listen to it, 400 metres hurdles. How fast do you think she ran it? to break the world record. She now has the world record. She ran it in 50.68 seconds. You know what that means? Every 100 meters with hurdles along the way, you're running at about 10 seconds. Even without hurdles, huh? if we ran, Roger, Andre, myself, and the basic games day, you try that, it'll be 20 seconds. 100 meters. 50. And so they interviewed her, they stuck the mic in her face, and, and she's breathing, she's panting away. What do you think she says? This would not be possible without Jesus Christ as my Saviour and my Lord. That's the first thing she says. This would not be possible. You know, for an athlete to stand up and say they are Christian, they get bullied in the locker room. They get bullied on social media. 
but she's enabled by God no matter what. In success or struggle, friends, the world does not recognize us. But simply because you are rejected by the world doesn't ever shake your confidence that you are a child of God. So right now, you may be struggling with a lingering unwellness, a lingering unwellness mentally that is frustrating you and frustrating your parents, a lingering unwellness that's physically, a sickness that you can't kick no matter what new drugs you try, right? And right now, you could be tempted to think that you're cursed or you suffer a handicap. You're born with a, with a spectrum of things and you're tempted to think you're stupid compared to your brothers or your sister or your friends. And you, you're so tempted to think if your parents and you're raising your children as best as you can from that little one that you carry to the tiredness of the night as you feed them, as you raise them, but it doesn't seem much. You're so tired, you're doing, you think you're doing such a poor job that the only thing left for you as a mother or father as you do such a poor job is, I deserve to be depressed. If you go to school and you stand up for Jesus in primary school and your friends ostracize you, you go to work and nobody realizes that you're a believer in Jesus, please take hold of this. They do not recognize you because they did not recognize your Savior. Just because you're rejected by the world doesn't mean you're not a child of God. You will pass the family test. You will pass the family test. And in passing the family test, you must continue to be like Him. Act righteously no matter what. And thirdly, it's sin and law. Verse 4, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared. My goodness, appeared. We told you six times it appears. Appears, appears six times. And what does He mean by this? This is how we live. With an awareness of sin. Right? No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. What's He teaching us about the true Christian experience? This is what He's not teaching us. The true Christian experience is not the absence of sin in a believer's life. And over 2,000 years of church history, some Christians have gone for perfect holiness. There is, that is not the case. In their case 2,000 years ago when John wrote this, they experienced this vision, they downloaded this supposed knowledge, and they said they are immune to sin. They have arrived. They are immune to sin. Church history shows that we can get this wrong. The true Christian life is not proven by an absence of sin. Modern versions of this, you might go to a church and you say you've got a problem, they'll cast out the demon. You'll be slain by the Spirit. You go on a fast. You visit this holy mountain, usually in Korea. You start on this program. You receive a second blessing because the first blessing of believing in Jesus and the Holy Spirit wasn't enough. You experience now total surrender. You're now fully broken by God. All that language is out there, right? I call this the vending machine gospel, where there's a quick fix about sin. You go into such places, and it's always an evil spirit living in you. But you can cast an evil spirit out of person with mental unwellness. It's not a spiritual problem. It's a mental unwellness problem. 
And to keep telling the person that you have an evil spirit after evil spirit after evil spirit when you have the Holy Spirit is mistaken theology. It's vending, ma vending machine theology that bypasses sin in our life. And the effects of sin, our fallenness and our sinfulness and our weakness and our, and our diseases and all that we suffer in life. So, once you do this thing, we will stop sinning and arrive at the next level. There's no magic bullet to this. The true Christian experience is not an absence of sin, but truly an awareness of sin. He will repeat this in chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God will continue to sin. Again, the focus is not teaching us the true Christian is incapable of sinning. He's not saying that. The true believer is not incapable of sinning, but it's inconsistent and incompatible for us to sin. It's totally unbecoming and unsuitable for us to carry on sinning if we are children of God, atoned for by Jesus Christ, who lived obediently and acted righteously all his life. So let's explore inconsistency, incompatible, right? You have a heart disease. The doctor has just told you that. You cannot continue to eat char siu, siu yolk, barbecue, chips. It's totally incompatible to you. You cannot be in RI and cheer for ACS. It's totally incompatible. Right? Anybody in that position? You cannot also be in ACS and cheer for RI. You cannot be dating Jack while lunching with John while flirting with Jeremy. You just like Jays. Never mind, that one didn't work. <laughs> you cannot be married and live as if you're single. You know, there's some people who are married and live as single because wherever they go, they don't have their ring. And so here's a tip I give you, right? Right across the board. Marriage preparation class, etc. You will always hear me mention Mona. Mona, Mona. Why do I do that? So when you think of me, you think of us as a married couple. You think of Mona, you think of me. You think of Adrian, you think of Anna. You think of Roger, you think of Mason. I better get all the pastor's wives right. Right. It's very, very important, right? You cannot be married and live as a single. You cannot be single and live as if you are married. Is that possible? Very early on in our history, right? This man who came to us, our service was really blessed. And then he said, Pastor Chris, in all likelihood, I'll just stop coming, you know why? Because this girl was infatuated with him. And she kept claiming to people around her that he had eyes for her. But he said he had no affections for her. She was totally mentally unwell and infatuated with him in, his, in her mind. And so he didn't come after a while. What do you think she did? She tracked him down at his home and went there and got on her knees and said to him, please tell the world that you love me. They had to call the police. You can't be married and behave you're single. You can't be single and pretend and be deluded that you're married. You can't be a child of God and carry on sinning with impunity. Not that you're incapable, but it's totally unsuitable. It's totally unbecoming of you. It's acting unrighteously. It's the breaking of the law. That's what he means here. So he's canvassing for you, rolling out, this is what it means to be children of God, to be lavished by the love of God. Things must change in your life. And so in the West, 
Did you notice in the Western Church, right, it only ever makes the news when Catholic priests molest children, when pastors commit adulteries, when denominations allow for gay marriages and ordain gay pastors, when here, go buy the history book by the Bible Presbyterian Church, thick book it was given to me, they, they were doing so well in the 50s and 60s, it was the church. They broke away from the Presbyterians because they thought the Presbyterians were, they thought the Presbyterians were liberal, right? Last week, if you were here, you heard one of them come from the, our brothers, Vincent. Vincent, are you here? So he says, yeah, I came here because I dropped the word Bible. So I had to correct him straight away, of course, jokingly. Lah, right? Bible Presbyterians, they were doing so well, and then they quarrel among themselves. And so in sadness, the Bible Presbyterians are known for their lawsuits. And years ago, I was invited to their first unity gathering. Presbyterians speaking to Bible Presbyterians. And their first gathering after 25 years or so of being split. And the pastor who had witnessed this all his life said, it's really a tragedy that we are known for our disunity. Put it all together, the church of God has gained a reputation for sin. The only time the church in the West and now in the East gets any interest is when we are known either. So the church of Jesus Christ shouldn't be, have a reputation for being sinless. That's not possible. Neither should we have a reputation for being sinful. That's incompatible. And that's very wrong, brothers and sisters in Christ. I've said this for many years. Before COVID, when I travel, Oh, you come from Singapore, Pastor Chris, right? Have you heard of Kong Hee? Everywhere I went, have you heard of Kong Hee? Then I have to ask them, there's more important people in Singapore, in the Church of Singapore than Kong Hee. The name is Jesus. The Kong Hees will come and go. The Joseph Prince will come and go. Have you heard of Joseph Prince? We are most tempted. Have you heard of Adrian Munoz? Have you heard of Pastor Roger? Have you heard of Pastor... Oh, I was there, lah, Right? The only time we get the interest of other people is when we are sinning. That's horrendous. That's a ploy of the devil. We should not be known for either being sinless, which is impossible because now but not yet, now in Christ but not yet complete and perfect. Neither should we be known to be sinful. This is what we should be known for, an awareness of sin and abhorrence of sin, a seriousness about sin. Then you take sin seriously, because you take your Saviour seriously, how lavish is the love of God that He's poured on you through Christ. That you don't deserve Jesus. Amen? So what does that mean? Enough of talking about all the big things out there. Are you serious about your Saviour and hence serious about your sin? So are your, are your eyes looking at things you should not look at? Let me just stare at your eyes. Eyeball me. Are your eyes looking at things you shouldn't stare at? I'm going to line up all the pastors afterwards as you go out the door and you eyeball the pastors and say to them, my eyes have not looked upon things I shouldn't look at. And we've got to make sure as pastors that we don't look upon things that we don't look, you shouldn't look at. Are your feet taking you to places you should not go? I do not know where you've been. God knows. But you could be so good at covering your tracks, right? You might quote the thing, no footprints in the sand. There's a wrong application of that quote. But God knows where I've been. Is your mind preoccupied with things that your mind shouldn't be preoccupied with? Is your heart pre 
meditating actions that you shouldn't premeditate. The specific sin in this letter is the failure to love. It's a serious business among us as Christians not to love each other. And it's going to go full on in chapter 4, right? And I hope if I, if I pass on, right, that you remember this of me. From first breath to dying breath, I will preach love and unity from first breath to dying breath. That the mark of the children of God following Jesus and acting righteously is not to sin in unlove, but to love and not sin. And that's very important. If I'm crucified for that, so be it. They said of John as he grew old, as he couldn't walk, as they carried him into the church in Ephesus, every time he greeted people coming into the house church, he would say, brothers, love each other. Brothers, love each other. He had cited love in the flesh. Jesus and when you see love in the flesh and love in its perfection, love hanging on the cross, you will never want to do anything else but love. And so, how serious are you about sin? How serious are you about the sin of being unloving in thought and word and deed? And finally, sin and the devil. And what does it say here? Do I hear rain out there? So no worries, we have all the time in the world. Verse 7, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The whole theme of living righteously. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil had been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So, this is how we must live. Confident in God's answer to our sin, Notice the repetition here in chapter 3, verse 5, and 3, verse 8, second part. He appeared that he might take away our sin. The Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's work. This is how we must live. With an awareness and abhorrence of sin, this is how we must live. With an awareness and abhorrence of Satan. In the end, Satan and sin will turn everything ugly in your life. But in the end, end, Jesus will turn everything beautiful in your life. Amen? That's what he's saying. So Jesus' death on the cross destroys sin. Jesus' death and resurrection destroys the devil's work. And we should be aware of this and confident that this is God's solution to us. And if you reject the devil's work in your life, the final verse, come with me, to verse 10. This is how we know we are the children of God and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So the three things tied in together. If you are born of God, you are children of God, you will practice righteousness because Christ practiced righteousness. You will not continue to sin you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to ask of you, if God asks you, can you be assured that you are a child of God, will you be able to answer in the affirmative? Your life is a series of righteousness. 
that your life is a series of hating sin, not hiding sin, not denying sin, not blaming others for sin, that your life is a series of loving brothers and sisters in Christ, loving, forgiving, reconciling, maturing, and glorifying God. If you are not doing those three things, increasingly a series of righteousness, increasingly hating sin, increasingly loving each other, you must be shaken now that you're presuming that you're a child of God. So, I've used this for the last two wedding sermons. I've used this quite a bit. How do you know that you could be loving or unloving? Every day you wake up, you have only this choice to make. You choose either to be unloving or choose to be loving. Quite simple, right? Don't ask, what is your will for me today, Lord? Just ask, as I wake up today and live today, my choice is whether to be loving or unloving. So you must never get used to unlove. And how might you slip into unlove? Don't superficially say, I'm irritated with you. Say more honestly, I'm angry with you. You know why? If I keep saying I'm irritated with you, Mona, I keep, I'm, I'm frustrated with you, Mona, irritation and frustration is not a sin. Anger is a sin. And I will do everything to avoid the word anger. I will do, use every other word. Mona, you're quite irritating now. Mona, you're quite frustrating now. Don't, don't tell her. <laughs> don't superficially say, we got a communication problem. Say truthfully, I don't like your opinion. I like mine better. Don't lightly say, I'm a bad listener. Say simply, I don't really care that what you're saying. Don't say dishonestly, I got no time. Say more honestly, I won't make time. Don't say you have your view, I have my view. Let's agree to disagree. Say more honestly to God. We are too proud to concede. We are too proud to agree. Don't say in married life. Not tonight, honey, I got a permanent headache. Say more honestly, I don't care to meet your most intimate needs. In all those ways, you and I can be unbelievably unloving and untruthful even as we are unloving. But we could cover it with half-truths. And so, every day you wake up, you have only two choices, to be loving or unloving. And when you come clean with God and say, I have a sinful nature, I'm capable of sinful actions, that's what it means in chapter 1, verse 8 to 10. I've got a sinful inherited nature from Adam. I'm capable of sinful actions in my life. I confess my sin. He's faithful and just to forgive me, never to punish me again. The moment you don't confess that, the moment you start to rationalize that, you are on a track of unlove. But how does love look like? And how might love look like? When you choose forgiving love, instead of resorting to irritation, hate, or indifference. When you choose to be incarnational, you know what incarnational means? Jesus came and the word is incarnated. He, the, the word became flesh. He entered our world. When you choose to be inca incarnational, to step into each other's world of the greatest delights and the greatest pain of someone else, instead of stepping on each other's toes. When you choose to put aside that silly gadget of virtuality, where is it? When you choose to put aside the silly gadget of virtuality for a newfound habit of reality, why should I be in communication with people out there? There's somebody here called my wife, my husband, my father, my son that I should give attention to. When you choose to be the first mover of peace, how? 
by walking the longest distance between the spot where you had a petty quarrel and made your stand so strongly, you make the first move to hug your spouse with God's love. When you choose to embrace rather than refrain on your marriage bed, when you choose to say sorry before the other, when you choose warm hearts than to perpetuate a cold war, you are choosing love. That's what it means. They are very, very small things, but very, very huge in terms of obedience to God and witness to Jesus and witness to God. In all those ways, we don't show off God's love. In all those ways, we showcase God's love. We showcase God's love by lips and by life. And this is the true gospel that we have in Jesus because He came to atone for us and to die for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are you children of God or children of the devil?